I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Well, spring is finally here. Out in Wisley Gardens this morning, I've been looking at magnolias, camellias, early rhododendrons, late daffodils, early tulips, and those pretty little blue and pink ground cover plants called pulmonaria. So, channeling the energy of spring, today we're exploring how to revamp your garden. BBC Gardener's World presenter Adam Frost will be sharing simple landscaping tricks. We'll be heading to the Yorkshire countryside to get inspired by a streamside display and we're starting growing under glass. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS, with me, Guy Barter. Would you like to be more creative in the garden? If you fancy pushing yourself, I know just the man to help. From upcycling old garden furniture, to making your own garden water features, to creating sculptural habitats for insects, Adam Frost covers it all in his new book, The Creative Gardener. We spoke to him to learn more. I was obviously approached by DK to do a follow-up book from my first one, which was all about how to design a garden. And then we started talking about how maybe you would personalise your garden. How do you really make it yours? And my background really is a gardener, trained as a landscaper, then went on, you know, and trained design. So I've always been somebody that's liked to make things and use my hands, but I've obviously built every single one of the projects. So I've designed them and created them, which meant I spent a long time in my shed with my little Robert's radio. It became my time. I reconnected with what I got from using my hands, you know? So my dream with it would be that at some point, you know, even 15 years down the road, I go into someone's shed and it's covered maybe in a little bit of paint, uh, a bit of varnish and, and sawdust. And I just want the book to be something that, you know, if you've got half an inkling of DIY or whatever it is, that you, this just becomes a bit of a mate for you, really. So if you've never had a go before at making anything, I don't want you to open a book, I can't do this, I can't carve or I can't, because actually I think in reality there's something in the book for everybody. A jumping off point would be maybe 
there's hazel ladders. I get slightly frustrated that we don't put enough thought into what we grow our plants up. And I had lots of old sort of apple trees that I wanted to grow roses up. And these simple little hazel ladders are exactly that. They're two longer pieces of hazel stick with a series, if you imagine, sort of ladder runs that run up them that are literally just tied in with string. And they work like a, you know, a one-sided wigwam. And then they're lent into the tree and the climber goes up into the tree. You could do the same things out of canes, you know, whatever you can get your hands on that's long and straight. And I suppose the one that jumps on from there really this will be a blast from the past for some people that some of you might know that i used to work for a certain fellow called jeff hamilton who used to present gardener's world and he made an obelisk with a ballcock on top of it in fact actually i made quite a few of those obelisks for him with the ballcock on top um i've done my version of that so i've probably slightly you know brought it up to date a little bit put a different venue on it and played around but then i've played with different finishes so with that particular thing I've started to burn the timber which was something that I saw when I was traveling in Japan so I think as well there's some of that in the book you know maybe different finishes different takes different looks you know and even something like you'll look at there's a, a sleeper bench in the book and it's a low sleeper bench which again was Japanese inspired and it's got this sort of what looks actually to be lovely carving all the way along it. In reality, yeah, the chisels are um, not the cheapest chisels in the world. I was bought a few for presents. But once you've done a little bit of that, you'll find you can soon become quite good quite quickly. And it's just patience. And all I did initially was start to experiment on some rough old bits of timber. I took two or three different chisel sizes and I drew just really simple lines, curvy lines along the front of these benches. And then I started to gouge out these chisels. And you end up with something that looks, even I'm looking at it and going, well, I got excited and Mrs. Frost and the kids, come and have a look at this, look what I've made, look what I've made. And they hand on heart and not as difficult as maybe they look. And reality is you've bought two oak sleepers and you know, you cut the ends off, they've made the legs. So you've got this amazing bench that you know you rocked up at a flower show would probably cost you a small fortune but in reality you know you're talking 50 60 quid and you've got an incredible feature in your garden so when it comes to sort of recycle make good actually in reality i get called step toe i've always been a nightmare for throwing stuff away and i think that's probably born my nan my scruffy nan, as I used to call her, used to hoard everything. So she used to have these Belfast sinks and she would throw nothing away. But she would create worlds in these Belfast sinks. So there's one project in there where actually I pinched a galvanised tank off Mrs Frost. That's why it's called Mrs Frost's water feature. And made that into a water feature. So if you're doing something like that, it's just making sure, you know, it's watertight, but then also nothing's going to seep from the container into the water to, you know, cause you any issues. And the same when you look at timber, really, I've gone to sort of oak sleepers and things like that. So I've used a lot of sort of more hardwood timbers in certain projects because I know they'll last a lifetime. That said, you don't have to do that. Again, I've used softwood projects, so some of it I might have used a bit of larching, I've used a bit of pining. It's just doing a little bit of research to start with to make sure that whatever you're going to make it out of, if you're going to put plants in, you don't want anything that's going to seep into the soil. Um, exactly the same, you know, with water. Apart from that, you're away.
So prime example of something that was made out of tantalized sleepers, so quite cost-effective with these little sleeper steps that I did. I've seen loads of sleeper steps in my time in gardening and quite a lot of them I didn't like. That's not to say you're all going to like mine because you probably won't. But again, how could I put a twist on it? So what I did was obviously worked out you know, the height levels, how I get from sort of the bottom to the top, the width of the step that I wanted. I wanted these to slow you down and engage, so I made these steps quite slim. So you really had to slow down to move up and down the steps, whereas if you leave them wider, you know, there's more of a natural sort of flow and you walk more comfortably. But I wanted to make them a little bit more interesting. So every riser, so the face of the step, is a sleeper on its side, cut piece of sleeper. And then what I've done is taken, well, it was a, it's a gouge axe. So it's a bit like the gouge um, chisels that I was talking about. So it's like a scooped axe. And I just took massive chunks out the front of the sleeper, you know. And then once I'd done that, I then set light to them. So I literally did get a burner and this thing I said I picked up in Japan um, and just started to burn the front of them. And they, it, it was incredible. And, you know, I'm getting excited talking about it because what happened is, is some of it burned, some of the deeper bits didn't, and you ended up with this real textural interest to what could just be a series of sleeper steps. And then once all the, the sort of vertical risers were in, then we've topped off everything just with turf. But again, you could do that in gravel. You could do it with bark. You know, you can make them into little time steps. And again, I think one of, that's one of the things with me with the book. I don't want anybody to necessarily copy what I've done. It's just enough to give you a little bit of confidence. Say, yeah, I could do that. And actually, when you do, going, actually, do you know what? I could do it better than he's done it. And that for me would be, you know, send me a picture of something you've created. And and these little sleeper steps, then we wildflowered either side and they look cracking, you know. So all of a sudden, that journey down to the bottom of the garden, it's not just a set of steps, it just adds a little bit of interest to the garden. And I think that's really what a lot of the projects are looking to do. They just, whether you're sat for a moment and all right, the bench is a little more interest, interesting or your coffee table is planted with, you know, a load of sort of sempervivums or that journey is Mrs. Frost's little water feature. Everywhere you go, you know, in your garden, if you can add a little bit more to the series of moments, then it becomes an even more of a special place. Hopefully just put them in the garden and put a smile on a few faces. Adam's new book, The Creative Gardener, published by the RHS in partnership with DK, is available to buy now. But if formal landscaping isn't your thing, don't worry because we're about to loosen things up a bit. Let's head to the streamside area of RHS Garden Harlow Carr in North Yorkshire. Hello, my name is uh, Amy Beth Browning and I am a horticulturist at RHS Garden Harlow Carr. The stream side at Harlow Carr, it kind of forms like a bit of a backbone in the garden. It runs right through the ornamental section of Harlow Carr and on the other side is the woodland. It's kind of where the wild part of nature meets an ornamental part. It's quite lush, it's quite lovely, and it's still got a lot of wildness to it. It's filled with a lot of bold plants and also a lot of color as well, a lot of colorful gems as well, a lot of little treasures. 
Because it's, it's such a big area, there's some wet areas where we get a lot of the winter storms that come through and take a lot of that water, that impact that comes from a lot of the good storms. But then again, when we get the lovely summer and spring heat that comes in, there's actually quite a bit of dry areas as well. So we get both worlds. But in the soils that stay wet here, they stay wet and we're always battling them. But the plants that do succeed in some of these wet areas, they want it wet and they're often quite vigorous. We have smaller things that are really wonderful, like our primulas. So you have the candelabra primulas, uh, the Harlowcar hybrids here, that really like that damp, rich kind of clay soil filled with organic matter as well. And they really add that color to the garden. But then we end up kind of also having a lot of large, vigorous plants as well. So things like regurzia which creeps along and gets these really kind of cool leaves that almost look like maple leaves that have just blown up inside. And they just keep creeping and creeping. They'll just love that, that wet soil. Um, then we have other things like hostas that will do well when they're not eaten by the slugs. There's also the iris. I should never forget about the iris. Iris are a wonderful thing for taking up that moisture and any of that organic matter that's been you know, laying on top of the surface for a while. The garden as a whole of Harlow Carr dates back to the 1800s when the wells were discovered here on the property and they turned it into uh, you know, a spa to come and take the waters. But later on, in many years down the road, the Northern Hort Society came and started taking over the property as well to trial out plants for the northern part of the country to see how hardy they were. And then over time, the streamside has evolved and changed just as it does with the water because the water is always going to tell you what it wants to do. We could try to tell it what it wants to do, but over time we've just been working with it and trying to see where we could make beds along it, um, areas that we also need to protect and put in erosion control. So it's been a developing process for quite a long time. Some of the challenges of working on the streamside garden is just having to relax and kind of see what the water is going to tell me what it's going to do, where it's going to flood, and then what plants are going to work there, what things I'm going to have to accept. This is a massive learning curve for me to be like, okay, this plant is not working here, it's too wet, or it's too dry, because people expect it to be wet all along Streamside, but wonderfully, we have a lot of mature trees along it, so that's great too. So we have these great towering oaks that are just above it, and that's beautiful. So where primulas might work in one place, they're totally not working in another. So that's one of the challenges, is kind of keeping up with the stormwaters that we do get coming into the garden and that speed of the water that's hitting the banks and wanting to protect that so we don't have erosion anymore. And we're slowly building areas where we're trying to put stone in to protect the banks, as well as making areas where the water can sit for a while and rest and pause and then go down a series of waterfalls so it's not so fast and so rapid all the time. And people see it, you know, outside of the garden um, in their own homes when water has nowhere to go, it just rushes away. So through planting, through plants that can take that water on, through marginal plants, 
plants. So that's probably the biggest thing is working with the water. And that's all the wonderful general things is probably weeds because where there's water, there's lots of really happy weeds. And then a lot of streamside plants, as fantastic and as bold as they are, they can be extremely vigorous as well. So they will just go for it. So I'm always having to keep an eye on the good guys, but remind me that they can be bad guys as well. <laughs> The wildlife along our stream side is just, it just lifts me up every day, as corny as that says, you know, bird life along it. They use it as a thoroughfare and it's just fantastic. And if you pause just for a little bit of time, you're gonna see somebody. And it's just so cool. We've got the wagtails are coming in now and they're looking for their nesting sites and they're just up and down the stream side. We have stones that are in the water as well um, that help to slow a bit of the water down. And they just stop on there. And then later on when they, they feed their young on the stones and even just like the robins that come in and we've got the crows that will, you know, these cheeky little birds that find places to take a bath when it's quiet. One of the questions they get a lot about damp ground, visitors will often ask, what can I do? I have such heavy clay and I just have wet, you know, wet soil all the time. But I guess if there's not something that you can resolve itself, like something that should be draining properly somewhere else, I think the first thing is maybe start by introducing organic matter to your soil, even if it's just mulches that are on top, like good leaf litter or even getting in some horse manure, because adding that kind of life back into the soil is going to add more insects and things of that nature to improve your soil over time. After that, if you can do that, Starting out with some maybe even shrubs, maybe small shrubs, if you can and you have space that can take up some of that moisture, like like some willow or some cornice. You know, some of these beautiful winter colored ones that you see now might really help to just reduce that if you, you know, if you have the space. After that, probably thinking about things like hostas or primulas or iris. They form a good root system and, you know, add that organic matter on top to help those root systems get into place to take that moisture up. After that, I guess the thing I, is maybe also not being so neat and tidy. <laughs> I'm trying to learn that myself now, and it's really hard to say, no, no, don't rake that up. Just just leave that down, you know, because those, those things will break down over time and encourage that life. Because a lot of times the soils that we have, it's, you know, like my home, it's all that backfill from when the houses were built a long time ago or compacted soils or heavy gray clay. But you just, you know, I'm at a loss at at times in my garden home of what to do with but trying to leave more of that stuff that the plants leave behind each year just a little bit rather than being too neat and tidy is is an idea thanks amy i have to say the stream garden at harlow car is my favorite bit of harlow car it's the finest in the uk they say and i can well believe it especially near the bottom, where the fantastic blue Himalayan poppies, Mechanopsis, flower fantastically in early summer. Taking Amy's advice a step further, let's talk bog gardens. Bog gardens can be helpful in many ways. They're a great use of a redundant or leaky pond. They can create a more relaxed edge to an existing pond. Or they could be a clever way of cultivating a naturally waterlogged dip. Plus, wildlife love them. 
bog gardens are in essence an artificial marsh. And to do that, you normally have some sort of hole and you line it to keep the water in, but you also puncture the liner to let the water seep. And then you fill it with a suitably organic rich soil. And then as long as it doesn't dry out too much or get too stagnant, you've got just the place to grow those bog plants. A stillbees are the classic boggy plant, I love them. But primulas, iris sensata and regersia for foliage are all excellent choices. Today, we've been exploring how to try new techniques and designs in your garden. So what about a new structure? Greenhouses provide an ideal protective environment for raising seedlings, overwintering tender plants or growing heat-loving crops such as tomatoes. I have a greenhouse, quite a small one, but it's still big enough to have a traditional short-term greenhouse rotation and that salads and transplants in the spring Transplants go out on the patio in May, and then tomatoes, aubergines, peppers fill the greenhouse all summer, benefiting from the extra heat. And then in the autumn, out they go, and in go chrysanthemums that have been waiting outside. And they're grown all through the autumn and into winter until the frosts bite for cut flowers. If you've been thinking about entering the greenhouse game, but don't know where to begin, don't panic. My fellow podcast host, Gareth Richards, is here to advise. We're going to be joining Gareth at his greenhouse over the next few weeks as he takes us through everything you need to know about gardening under glass. Today I'm down in the greenhouse on my allotment. It's a little piece of uh, green heaven surrounded by the industrial estates of Peterborough. One little uh, chunk of green paradise that's been left spared by the builders. And about five years ago, I was really, really happy to kind of up my veg growing and allotment game by putting a greenhouse on the plot. And it made such a difference. It's my growing HQ in a way. And I think that like investing in a greenhouse is, is one of the best gardening buys you can do because what a greenhouse does or a polytunnel, it gives you that kind of protected space. And I've read somewhere that actually the fact that you've got glass moves the space within it 500 miles south. So just by putting a sheet of glass over me, I'm now in Bordeaux. I'm not in Peterborough, I'm in Bordeaux. And so you, you can grow really reliable crops of tomatoes, great peaches, you can grow salads all through the winter. And for the cost of a greenhouse or a polytunnel, I think that's a pretty remarkable thing. And what I really love about growing under glass is that, you know, even on the coldest, windiest day, with the rain hammering on the roof, you're inside and you're cosy and it's this wonderful protected space. It just makes the garden or the allotment a joy to be in, whatever the weather. And you have these beautiful sort of off-season flowers. So at the moment, I'm growing sweet peas that I sowed in the autumn and it's late March and they're bursting into bud. They're gonna be in flower probably just after April Fool's Day. And to me, that's, that's just a wonderful thing. I've spent nothing on heating. It's just the fact that having that protection of the glass really does kind of open up a world of horticultural possibilities. So greenhouses and polytunnels come in lots and lots of different shapes and sizes, and they, you can get one to suit any budget, really. 
But I would always say get the biggest and best you can afford because it, it is a really, really worthwhile investment. I mean, you can start off with a little grow tunnel, you know, that you can just put against a patio wall and that will help you get better crops of tomatoes. The ideal is to get an aluminium greenhouse because that's probably the greenest option because every part of it could be recycled at the end of its life. They're really, really long lasting and you get really, really good results. You can have a freestanding greenhouse. You can get one that's combined with a shed. So it's like a lean to so you have half shed half greenhouse there really is a galaxy of choice available but any protected growing space that you're able to get will really be worth its weight in gold one thing i would say is try and avoid the really budget options the really cheap ones because they will probably blow down in the first storm and actually it will work out a bit more expensive in the long run so if you can get a good sturdy aluminium greenhouse you can even buy them second hand it's a very worthwhile investment. One of the things to know if you do get a secondhand greenhouse is you might have to take it down yourself and then put it back up again. So, you know, set aside a whole weekend. It's a fun project, but it is a fair amount of work. You'll save loads of money and it will be worth it in the long run. And in terms of siting a greenhouse, always try and put it somewhere sunny and face the door away from the prevailing wind because you don't want to have those cold drafts coming in the whole time. Try and select one with a good amount of ventilation as well because equally you don't want it to overheat in the summer so ideally a vent or two in the roof and a side vent if you can. So for my greenhouse what I did was they don't need particularly deep foundations. I actually found some um, discarded concrete fence posts at the back of the plot, dug them down, made a nice level base used that soil to make raised beds inside the greenhouse because that's another thing if you're Using grow bags, there's implications for are you using peat? There's a kind of a carbon cost to that. Even if you're using peat free and it needs more watering, if you make raised beds in your greenhouse and you use the soil, and I use the soil that I dug out from the foundations, that's given me a really, really good deep depth of soil in which to grow in and my tomatoes and my salads and everything really really thrive. I do add a bit of compost and a bit of fertilizer every year because you know you're working that soil really really hard but the other advantage of growing in the soil rather than grow bags or pots is that you don't have to water so much and that's particularly important say you're growing on an allotment where you might not be able to go every single day. So at the moment my greenhouse is, is bursting with various different things. All my early narcissi, all my little uh, tented daffodils that I grow for cut flowers, they're all just coming to an end. It's absolutely bursting with winter salads. I've got kale, I've got chicory, I've got lots and lots of rocket. And they're all starting to flower now as the days get longer and it gets a bit warmer. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a few little rows of microgreens. I've got some coriander, I've got some rocket, I've got a little bit more chicory and some pea shoots. And they're just ordinary peas from the supermarket, dried peas, and you can soak them, which speeds up the germination and reduces the risk that the mice are gonna come and nibble them before they get a chance to germinate. And those things, will, they'll romp away over the next couple of months and then be over and done with by the time I want to plant my tomatoes and my basil, sort of mid-May time. A greenhouse really gives you about a month advantage on each end of the season which is just really it's really valuable so you're growing things like lettuces you can start them in february rather than in march and even things like peas you can sow a crop of peas sort of late summer early autumn and they'll crop easter early may rather than in june and so that's really wonderful that you can use a greenhouse to kind of extend the season and my compost i have a bit of an admission to make 
my compost tends to be quite seedy so when I've mulched the beds all kinds of things come up but I think that's one of the real tips and tricks of learning that you get from experience as a gardener you learn to recognize those seedlings so I've got a lovely crop of parsley now in the greenhouse which came from my compost and some coriander as well and they've grown away over the winter and they're now surging forth with loads and loads of leaves and if I bought those in the supermarket you know they would cost pounds and pounds and pounds but there's just this lovely steady supply and that that kind of takes me back to another point about if you're worried about the plastic implications of getting a polytunnel I would say don't because the amount of food that you can grow in that polytunnel think of all the plastic packaging that you would use for all those salads all those punnets of tomatoes and things you know within a couple of years you're going to be plastic positive even though you have bought a big roll of plastic to cover your polytunnel so if you haven't already got a greenhouse remember put it in a sunny spot put some water butts on the end because you'll really need that water and it's really worth harvesting it buy the biggest you can afford because it will be worth it you will treasure every square inch of space that you have inside it go for aluminium if you can because it's really really long lasting really durable and remember, you don't need massive foundations. You don't have to dig a three-foot foundation. Just a row or two of bricks will be fine because it will be held by its own weight. And ideally, this is my personal opinion, put some beds in there, grow in the ground, because it makes it a lot easier to water and I think you'll get better crops than in grow bags or pots. And so I'm off. I'm going to sow some cosmos in some modules. I'm going to sow a bit of lettuce, some salads for planting out. I'm going to sow a row or two of microgreens and some pea shoots to just get myself ahead and ready for the tomato planting season in a couple of months' time. And have fun! <laughs> Thanks, Gareth. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you're feeling inspired to try something new in the garden. This year, I've got a few things I'm going to try. I had a terrible trouble with my Brussels sprouts and storing cabbage. They just won't grow after July, and I don't know why. So I'm trying different treatments of fertiliser, adding manure, and I've even dug a trench and filled it with some beautiful loam that I've got. I'm also trying a few less usual things. I do try them from time to time. They're quite difficult and not terribly rewarding, but I keep trying. Chinese artichokes called Crosney, saltwort, Gretti. I should give them a go. And I'm going to ring the changes on my patio flowers. I fancy some of the more showy osteospermums. For more on today's topics, visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy creating. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. 
or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.